Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. He loves lists. You'll notice this. Like he, he's OCD on lists. Make sure I don't forget anybody. They're all to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, <laughs> all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music <laughs> shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. When these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Father, we thank you for the men and women who have blazed trails of faith that we can learn from, be inspired by, be strengthened, be informed. We thank you for this story, for the four boys in Daniel who against pressure that we can't even imagine stood firm. We ask that this day, wisdom would be given to each of us to stand. So speak, maybe listen. We pray this in your name, amen. You can have a seat. How good is that story? So good. Here's the danger in Daniel. We look at Daniel because of the fiery furnace, because of the lion's den, we look at it like it's kids' stories, right? So most of us, if we grew up in the church, we had this story done on, if you're my age, a flannel graph. Remember the flannel graphs? I love that, man. We're going back to analog, telling you. And you had the three guys in the furnace and all of a sudden Jesus photobombs it and shows up as well. Like, yeah, right on, hero, right? So we have that. Or if you're a little bit younger, maybe it was watching Veggie Tales when they did the whatever it was, Benny and Shaq and someone else, right? So there's a way then that the breadth of the message of Daniel just gets lost. It gets lost in like the narrative arc and you're like, oh, what a cute story. But what I told Wednesday night was this, Daniel's actually a very dangerous book. In fact, in chapter two, Josephus tells us that in AD 66, 68, the Jews started reading chapter two of Daniel and they saw that Rome was the clay feet with the iron and they said, we'll be the rock that destroys the image. And they rebelled against Rome, right? That's how dangerous this book is. It's incredible. So we miss how brilliant it is. And we have this, this really, it's a blueprint of what happens when you live in Babylon. That there are currents that culture constantly pushes against people of faith and those currents have not changed. They're the exact same currents that they faced 2,500 years ago 
you and I are facing today. That somehow I think we believe we live in a different age. That maybe science or technology has changed things. You know that science and technology has not changed our battle. In fact, I think it makes things even harder today, right? If you're my age, 47, did you ever binge watch a show? You couldn't, right? When you were a little kid, you could not binge watch shows, right? The only binge watching I could do was on PBS. They'd have like this day where they'd play Mutual of Omaha all day long, right? The nature show like over and over and over and over and over. You're like, ah, just want to poke yourself with a rusty shrimp fork. Like I can't take this anymore, right? That was the only thing you could do. And no one was like binge watching that. So it's made things harder, more difficult. But I'm gonna try to show you, we looked at the forest now, we just did a flyover, 30,000 foot view. Now I wanna land the plane, I'm gonna look at one tree to show you how big Daniel is, how good it is at detailing the battle that we're gonna face as people of faith, okay? So look at one verse, it's just verse 12. And in it, it gives us the cultural pressures that come down on believers in every single age. Watch this. This is when they get told on for not bowing down. There are certain Jews whom you appointed. What are they doing right there? Now that's brilliant, right? Kind of Nebuchadnezzar's fault. And they're also detailing out a group of people. There are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, number one, pay no attention to you. Number two, they do not serve your gods. Number three, or worship the golden image that you've set up. I just call this the unholy trinity of empire. And I don't care what day you lived or what place you have lived, at some level, these three pressures are gonna try to crush you and get you conformed to whatever image that culture has, that country has, all right? So I'm gonna try to do that, try to show you that, each one of these. So number one is this, they don't pay attention to you, king. I'm gonna call this nationalism. Have you heard that term? It's kind of bantered around right now, nationalism is. And I'll say this, there is a good way to love your country and there is a bad way to love your country. The good way to love your country is called patriotism. I'm a patriot. A patriot says this, I am proud of what my country does when it's something to be proud of. So if we look at our country, I look at World War II, I look at the evil that was coming out of Germany, out of Hitler, out of Mussolini. I see the evil of that. And when America decided to join in that battle and put our boys on the front line and fight back that evil, I say, proud. That's awesome. Good. So as a patriot, that makes me proud. But I also realize, reading the history of America, we haven't always done things that I'm proud of. And as a citizen, as a patriot of America, I take a collective responsibility, not only for the good stuff we've done, but also the bad stuff. And I can look and view my country through that lens. Well, we've done good and that's awesome. But we've also done things that were not so noble, not so good, right? That's a patriot. Proud of what a country does when it does good. A nationalist is proud of their country no matter what it does. 
that everything that country does is right. Everything that government does is right. That's a nationalist. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. It requires blind allegiance to an ideology and to leaders and to a government. And it's exactly what happened in Germany. It was nationalist that we want you, you, we are going to make you believe that what we always do is right, no matter what we're doing. That is a very, very dangerous, bad thing to be. I want to be a patriot, not a nationalist, right? What Nebuchadnezzar wanted though, pay attention to me. Do what I say, obey me completely. Don't say what I'm doing is wrong. That's very, very dangerous. So as believers, we're always aware that sometimes when I say the word state, I'm not saying like Oregon, I'm saying a state like a country. I'll just use the word country. That sometimes countries have agendas that are contrary to what we know to be the truth of scripture and of Jesus Christ. And we have to know that the agenda of a country very often can spill over and begin to affect believers and we should stand up against that. I'll give you just one example. I ran into this this last week. I did a memorial service for David Graham. Maybe you know him, uh, 95 year old, loves Jesus. Just a brilliant, that's one that you just celebrate. It's awesome, lived a strong life. Uh, he has a grandson, Kelly Graham, who was around here for a while and now is a pastor up in Salem. So my wife and I reconnected with his wife and he and we were chatting and he told me this. He says, I have this friend who's a pastor up north, north of Salem. So north of Salem is like another country, isn't it? It's like Beirut in the 1980s. So uh, it's like a different country. So he's up, his buddy's up there and we're talking about foster care and how foster care for us in Josephine County has been a really positive, like we love the DH workers, a lot of believers involved. It's been really, really great. But he's like, this pastor tried to get involved with foster care, went through the process, was doing it. When someone, and I don't know if they were told to or where it came from, but they asked this pastor, they said, we want all of your messages. We want them before you can be a foster care parent. And I went, ooh. Like you don't have to read too much into that to see what's going behind the lines, right? So just go to Houston, Texas in 2014. When Steve Riggle, the pastor, the teaching pastor of Grace Community Church, a mega church in Houston, massive, and everything's big in Houston, it's like 20,000 people. He was asked by the mayor of Houston to give over all of his sermons dealing with homosexuality, gender identity, the mayor and her new laws, right? He was subpoenaed for those things. Remember that? That's an agenda. And as believers that are patriots, we say, that's not noble and that's not right. And we stand against those kind of things. We push back. You gotta be careful. We're never to pay too much attention to a king. If you're 19 years old, that means you are born in the bloodiest century in human history. The reason why it was so bloody, too much attention paid to the king. Nationalism went rampant. And if you know your history, there are these forces that begin to lead into this kind of idea that the state replaced God. And when it replaced God, it became whatever the state does is right because God does not make mistakes. So there's this famous interview with Baldur von Sirach, who was in charge of Hitler's youth in the 1930s before World War II. So he goes to London, does this interview, and they're asking him, what are you trying to teach the, the youth of, of Germany? He said this, I'm trying to teach the youth of, of Germany that if they serve Hitler, they serve Germany. If they serve Germany, 
they serve God. There's nationalism. That the leader represents everything. So blind allegiance to Hitler. So you wonder how these kids in 1932, 33, 34, these kids that have been raised with that, why in World War II they would do things that you're just like, what in the world were they thinking? Well, if you serve Hitler, you serve Germany. And if you serve Germany, you serve God. That's how it happens. That out of control, nationalism. And the 20th century was full of that. Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot. Those guys are responsible for ethnic genocides, ideological genocides. They are responsible for the murder of over a hundred million of their own people because of differences, right? It's crazy. Be careful as believers. When you begin to mix politics and religion, be careful of that. Be careful when a church begins to align itself too closely with a political party or ideology or a politician. Because man, I love my country, but I live for Jesus and for his kingdom. And I've got to keep those things separate. And I've got to make sure in my mind, I know I'm a patriot. I need to step back on certain things and pray because just because our government says something is legal does not mean it's moral. That my morality is not determined in the Supreme Court. My morality has already been determined by God in scripture. And that's where my allegiance goes. So as believers, we always come back and we say, be careful, be careful. These three boys, when they answer Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, they're like, we're not paying attention to you. You're not Jesus, sorry, right? It makes Nebuchadnezzar furious, right? Number one, be careful of this. Be careful. It's a warning throughout the book of Daniel. We'll hit it again in chapter seven and chapter nine and chapter 10 over, be careful of this. So number one, nationalism. Number two, not only do they not pay attention to you, O king, number two, they don't serve your gods. Number two, pluralism. You guys know what pluralism is? Hopefully you will after this. Nebuchadnezzar was this. He ran this empire that covered many countries, many different kinds of people, many different religions. And so what Nebuchadnezzar said was this. It's what Rome did as well. Babylon said this, listen, you can serve your own God. Serve him however you want. Jews, if you wanna serve Yahweh, go right ahead and serve Yahweh. Do it. Every single person, you can serve whatever God you want. Pluralistic, serve any you want. But you can't do this, Babylon said. You can't make your God the exclusive and only God. You can't do that. So in order to prove that you're not doing that, come out, see my image and bow down. It will prove to everyone that you're not a bigot, that you're not exclusive, that you're not saying Yahweh is the only God. Serve any God you want, just don't make him the only God. That's pluralism. Is that what we're facing today in America? Oh my goodness. This is huge today, right? Tolerate. And the way that you prove you're not a bigot is by a coexist sticker and put it on your bumper and everyone will know he's not a bigot. She's not a bigot, right? The only thing that our culture won't tolerate today is exclusivity. It's the only thing, right? It's fascinating to me. 
right? People will say this like, hey, you can't say Jesus is the only way. You can't Jesus say Jesus is the, is the single way to the Father. You can't say that, right? That there are many roads that lead to God. So don't try to convert any peop- anyone because they'll find their own way, right? And what someone is saying by that is this. They're saying, I understand reality better than you do. Convert to my reality. In, in essence, they're becoming the bigot. They won't tolerate exclusivity. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And it's huge now. So I mentioned an article, I don't know, five years ago that I really, really thought was interesting. Because like what comes down from, from the elite shapes us. And it was a big article because it said this, fundamental religions breed terrorism. Now, is that true? I just say, what about the Amish? Because the Amish put the fun in fundamentalist, 100%, man. You ever heard of an Amish terrorist? Right? Are we like, look out for the Amish terrorist. If you see a horse and buggy, man, that's a terrorist, look out. Right? FBI, like, on, is it on their terror watch? NSA spying on them? Breathe really hard because they don't have cell phones, so they can't buy anything out about them. No, I've never heard of an Amish terrorist. Why is that? Because what matters most is what's your fundamental. And the Amish have this fundamental that's brilliant and beautiful about them, where they say our fundamental is the Prince of Peace. And because that's their fundamental, they live in a very peaceful, beautiful way, right? But, but there's this agenda that you can see it, pushing, pushing, pushing. And it's, it's an issue you will face. As a pastor, I've had this conversation more and more lately. And it's this, Matt, I can't believe that Jesus is the only way. I can't believe in the God of love of the Bible that would send somebody to hell. Have you heard that? It's, 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 it's there. That's pluralism, right? Yes, there's many ways to God. And it usually goes like this. I know so-and-so, or I have this person, and they are a good person. They're a good person. They pay their taxes, April 15th, National Morning Day. They pay their taxes, right? They're nice. Man, he brings my garbage can up to my house every single Tuesday. He's awesome. I love him. He donated a kidney to someone he didn't know. He is a good person, and good people will find their way to God. You ever heard that? And I have. Here's my answer now. I say, man, that's awesome. I love that. So your religion, your philosophy is simple. That good people will find their way to God. Yeah. I say, what about bad people? What about the kid that was raised in a drug home? There's meth and heroin and drinking and violence. And that's all he saw his whole life. And now he begins to see that same thing and begins to act out in the same way. What about him? He's not gonna be a good person. You won't want him as your neighbor, Right? You're not stopping for him. What about him? Because your religion excludes him. He'll never find his way to God, right? What about the bad people? You're just as exclusive. You're a bigot. Usually I don't say that last part. I just kind of, <laughs> doesn't usually help, <laughs> right? Here's the thing that I think is so amazing and so incredible about Jesus. The exclusivity of Christianity becomes so inclusive because it says this, you're all bad. You're all bums, but you're all included. I don't care how bad you have been. I don't care what your life has looked like. I don't care what you've done. I'm bigger than that. And you can come to me. It's brilliant. 
Like the gospel is so amazing. The problem is this, we don't really think through the gospel very well. We don't really, when people attack from whatever, we just like, ah, I can't believe this. Think through the gospel, how beautiful it is. It says the door's wide open to good and bad people, to everyone. And here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel works when it comes to creating what, what Babylon was trying to create, right? So if you look at verse 12, it's really interesting because they point something out. There are certain Jews. What's that saying right there? It's anti-Semitism. It's prejudice, right? And you'll see throughout Babylon, when, when we get through this book, over and over, the Jews are pointed out, right? The Jews, the Jews. So what Nebuchadnezzar wanted with his image was this. I want to unite my empire. I want everyone to get along. But guess what? They weren't. Because pluralism never works. It never unites people, right? Have you heard of identity politics? Identity politics is this. I have this identity and I'm gonna gather around a group of people that same, have the same identity as me and then we're gonna push for our thing in government. It's called identity t- politics. It is dividing our country like nothing. I've never seen division in our country like identity politics have done. Like everyone has their own little identity and everyone's pushing for their own little thing. Like it's causing battles I never thought would ever happen. And if you're a news junkie, you know this. Like right now, uh, feminists and transgender people are just boom, they're at it, at each other's throats, right? And you're like, what in the, who in the, what, what happened there? Well, identity politics are like splintering glass. They just make smaller and smaller, smaller groups that are more divided, more divided, more hateful, more, ah, isn't that in America today? Like, it's amazing to me. Pluralism doesn't work. But if you read the Bible and you look through history, you come to Rome, same thing. Rome is exactly like Babylon. It said this, if you'll just pinch a little bit to Caesar, you can worship Jesus as well. If you'll just say Caesar is God, then you can worship Jesus like you want. And the church said, no, we won't. We believe in the exclusivity of Jesus. And they were persecuted and run down and killed and the catacombs are full of them. But you know what the gospel did that Rome could never do? United people. Because the gospel said this, I don't care if you're Greek or Jew, rich or poor, male or female. I don't care if you're a slave or a master, you're welcome. No other religion did that. I don't care who you are or what you've done, you are welcome at the cross because it's for sinners, all of us, brilliant. We have documents from the first and second century of slaves being elders in a church where their master attended. Where in the world does that happen? How brilliant is that? right? Remember Acts 11, if you were here, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible because it's, it's this church at Antioch. It's called the cradle of Christianity because in Acts 11, the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, it's all about the Jews. The Jews were the main church, but then in Acts 11, all of a sudden it breaks out. And so you have Jews now going up to Antioch, preaching the gospel in this city and something happens. If you know Antioch, it was a giant city, crossroads of the Roman empire. And because it attracted people from all walks, Asians, Africans, Europeans, Jews, Greeks, all of them were in this city and they did not like each other. The city had to physically build walls between the different ethnic groups to keep the peace. But then all of a sudden the gospel comes. And on Sunday mornings, the city watched this happen. People climbing over the walls 
on Sunday morning to gather together from each one of those quadrants, coming together and worshiping the same king. And the city stood back and went like, what in the world? What do we call these people? We can't call them Africans or Germans or Greeks or Jews or Asians. We can't call them barbarians. We can't call them slave or free or male or female. What do we call them? Because they're all of that. It says there in Antioch, believers were first called Christians. We gotta come up with a new name for this group. We've never seen something like this before because the exclusivity of Jesus actually makes community and includes everyone in a brilliant way. Beware, beware of pluralism. It divides. Just look at our country now. It's just, it's dividing us more and more and more. It's only the good news that I'm a bum and you're a bum, but Jesus is so good. He invites me, bum Matt, to sit and eat at his table as his son, a future ruler and reigner with him. Oh, that's uniting, uniting. We gotta think more about the gospel. When we're attacked by some kind of ideology, man, just think of the gospel, how it applies to that. And the answer is so beautiful. We just gotta think better, right? So beware nationalism, beware pluralism. And there's the final one, the unholy trinity or worship the golden image that you've set up. Listen to me carefully. You will worship something. Do you know that? It's like breathing. The human heart is built, it's tuned to worship. So if you know history, um, there's this cover of Time Magazine. It's their most famous, iconic cover ever. It's the one time Time did not put a picture on, just words. And it was April 6th, 1966, and it said this, God is dead, right? And that's a product of evolution. All these thoughts were saying this, science, technology, we don't need God anymore. And this was a theology that built out of those kind of thinking that God is dead, right? How's that worked? Because the 20th century was, we don't need God. The state replaces God. People replace God in communism, whatever it is. We don't need God anymore. We have science, we have technology. No one's gonna believe in God anymore. Churches will be empty. Has that happened? I have a Pew Forum where they did a research and it was released a couple of years ago where they looked at, looking out on trends, what's gonna happen by 2050. And it was so interesting that the, the nuns, people that said, we don't believe in God, there's no God. The nuns were decreasing radically as a percentage of the population while believers in God, whatever that God is, were radically increasing. That's the Pew. They're not Christians. They're just saying, this is what's happening because your heart is tuned to worship. You will worship something, right? Every game day, guess what people do? Every tailgate party, guess what people do? Every pro sport, guess what people do? Every college sport, guess what people do? Right? Beavers, yeah! Ducks. Quack. (laughs) March Madness, man. What happened to March Madness if you're a March Madness person? Right? Did you ever celebrate? Did you ever raise your hand and be like, yeah! You ever have shouts of joy? What is that? That's worship, baby. That's worship. How did you feel when your team unexpectedly won a game? As a beaver, I have to ask because I don't know how that feels. (laughs) 
What is all that? Ah, it's this desire, this desire to worship, to praise all of us. To me, the Christian life is a daily distilling of Matt, what today are you gonna worship? What image are you gonna give your allegiance to? Which image will you worship today, Matt? That's what Christianity is. Because worship is like breathing. It's built into the DNA of a person. Matt, why does it matter who I worship? I'll give you two reasons and then we're done. Number one, what you worship will control you. And here's how you know. You will always be generous with your God. Whatever your God is, nothing's too expensive. Whatever your, whatever your budget is, nothing's too expensive for your God. You're always gonna be generous to your God. So if your God is looks, you'll be generous with that. Right, out with the oil of Olay, just ain't working anymore. So I Googled a couple weeks ago, like what is the most expensive cream? It's called creme de mar. It is $2,160 for 16 ounces. The good news is it's free shipping. <laughs> so get two. That's crazy, but man, if looks are it, ah, no problem, I'll pay it. If my brain's it, then the $5,000 for the one hour, one-on-one with thy guru, I'll pay it. Worthwhile. If being in shape is my God, then meant supplements, whatever it is, I got low testosterone, whatever it is. And you're gonna, you're gonna do whatever you wanna do to make sure that you fall down and worship at the feet of your God. It will control you. You will not miss time to worship. That's what will happen to you. And you're gonna evaluate, what's my God? What's... What's the one thing you say? Don't put a price on that. Don't put a price on that, right? But here's the thing. When it comes to what we worship and what controls us, every image on earth is a taker. And when it's done taking, it just discards you. So if looks are your God, guess what? One day you're not gonna look very good. Maybe you're the best looking 95 year old in the world, but guess what? One day you die and you don't look too good anymore, right? Eventually it drops you, right? If your brain is it, if you're investing all your money in your brain, do you know this? Science has found your brain's decaying, okay? One day you will hide something from yourself. It's coming, like what in the world? I'm hiding stuff from myself now because your brain's decaying. It's gonna betray you. It doesn't matter. One day you will not be in shape. Yeah, just write that, whatever. Write that on your workout. One day I will not be in shape. One day I won't be able to get out of bed because they're takers. Only the Bible says God's a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's why. Let that control you. That's a giver. Number two, whatever you worship is what you become. Whatever you worship is what you become. And here's the best illustration I have of this because it happened to me. There's a guy I really admire. I've admired from far. And then one day I had a chance to have uh, a lunch with him. And so I sat down and we talked and he, he's as good as I could imagine. You know, he's like a guy that is as close to a hero as I have. He's a hero to me. And what I found was this, after I left the meeting for the next couple of weeks, I took with me some of his mannerisms, like these little phrases he would say, the way he would say it, right? You ever done that? Yeah, you have. I know you have. What, what is that? He imprinted himself on me because I admire him. He imprinted himself on me. 
What you worship is what you'll become. And so the Bible says this over and over. Because of that, only worship God. See, here's the big, big story of the Bible. God created you as his image bearer. That we are to mirror back to God that image. And any other image that we worship, listen to me, it's too small. Why is this image that Nebuchadnezzar makes 90 feet tall? Because Nebuchadnezzar knew this. All these images are too small. Maybe if I just made a bigger image, it would unite us. Maybe if I just looked a little bit better, I'd get it. Maybe if I had just a little bit more money, I'd get it. Maybe if I was just a little bit more powerful, I'd get it, right? We all have that, that dangling thing out there. If it was just bigger, that would do it. Listen to me. Nothing on earth is big enough for the capacity that you were created. Only God's image reflects back to us purpose, fulfillment, greatness that can fill our capacity because we're too big. No image can do it. So no matter who you're pursuing or what you're pursuing, it will always leave you flat. You'll never get good enough. So that's, that's why the Bible says this. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Ultimately, the destiny of every believer is simple, to be conformed to that image. That's our destiny. It's the reason why we come and we partake. What we're doing when we come and partake is this. Jesus, break the idols that have set up in my heart. Jesus, remind me that you're the only one that can satisfy me. Help me to worship you alone. Help me today as I eat and as I drink to have you imparted, imprinted to my heart so that when I leave here, I go back to my home, I go back to my work, I go back to my neighborhood, carrying with me you, your love, your grace, your mercy, your goodness, your inclusiveness. Help me to do that. Forgive me for paying too much attention to the king. Forgive me. Forgive me for bowing down to the wrong images. Forgive me for pluralistic thinking. It's you alone. That's what we come to the table and do. So Jesus, this day, may we eat and drink of you. May the cup and the bread be life for us today. May your goodness and your mercy and your grace and your kindness and your compassion and your strength and your fortitude and your nobleness, may you be imparted into our lives today as we partake. May you be our hero. May we look to you. May we worship you. And may we become like you. So may we eat and drink of that this day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.